Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Let's Talk TV's House MD Rewatch. My name is Barbara Barnett. I'm your host. I'm executive editor of Blog Critics Magazine, where I also serve as senior TV and film editor. I'm also editor-in-chief and publisher of Let's Talk TV, the blog. Uh, I want to welcome you tonight, and remember, you can call in at 213, oh, sorry, wrong number. You can call in at 718-305-6982 to join me live on the air for your comments and questions, and we're going to be talking tonight about the third episode of House MD in the first season, Occam's Razor. Um, I'd like to ask you if you like the show, please visit my profile page on Blog Talk Radio. Join the mm, 80,000 or so people who've already seen it. Follow me on Blog Talk Radio. Better yet, subscribe to my blog or subscribe to the radio show. And download, download the free app on iTunes. Or if you've got an Android device, you can download it as well at play.google.com. Speaking of the app, we are sponsored tonight by Wireless One Marketing, and they can develop for you a great app at a very affordable price. My app, so if you want to go see my app, you'll see what they can do, was developed by the Wireless One team. So just download the Let's Talk TV app and you can see what they can do. Call Wireless One Marketing Group today at 847-637-2514 for a free demo. That number again is 847 637 2514, or feel free to visit their website at www.app2020.com, www.app2020.com. So our humble little show is also sponsored this evening by the book Chasing Zebras, The Unofficial Guide to House MD. You can get Chasing Zebras in paperback in all its 429 pages of glory, photos and all. Everywhere fine books are sold, it's available not only in English, but in French and in Spanish as well. And I hear tell somewhere there's a Russian version of it. And you can also get the ebook at any place that ebooks are sold, uh, either here and all over the world in English. Um, from anywhere from the Kindle Nook to Kindle to Nook to PDF to iBook, it's out there. We are now well over 120,000 listeners here at Let's Talk TV Live. So bravo to you and thank you for listening in. Last week's House Rewatch episode had more than 2,000 downloads this week. So yay. Last night's show where I had Jerry Weaver and Jerome Wetzel and we kind of riffed on what's going to happen during uh, the February sweeps. And we had a great time until about two minutes to go on the show. We had this weird technical thing happen, and it blew everybody's ears out. So I apologize for that. Um, hopefully that won't happen tonight. I'm assured that it's a once-in-a-blue-moon event, so hopefully that, that won't happen to us. But just in the last since last night, um, more than 3,000 people have downloaded last night's episode. So, again, thank you so much. Um, and in addition, last week's house episode had several hundred people listening in live, which is astonishing. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, this Thursday, for those of you guys who are house fans, I'm going to be interviewed. I'm going to be on the other side of the microphone. 
and I'm going to be interviewed by Wes Britton for his show, Dave White Presents. He's the co-host of Dave White Presents, and it will be on their radio show coming up, and so um, I will let everybody know when that's going to be. Um, and uh, so listen in at that. Next Monday's show will feature the new web series, Miss Jones, which was created by James Giacomo, who will be on the show with me along with um, during the second half of the show, Jerome Wexel will come back uh, to talk about the things we couldn't cover last night due to technical glitch. And maybe we'll have Jerry back on, too. I just haven't talked to her yet. We'll also talk about Elementary's Super Bowl episode, which will have just aired. Then in the rest of February, we will be talking on Monday nights about Once Upon a Time in Elementary and on, on, on the uh, February 11th and February 15th. And then on the 28th, all of you house fans, of course, on Tuesday night, I'll be continuing my house rewatch. And then on February 28th, I will be joined in the studio by Wally Padrezik of the Museum of Broadcast Communication, which is located here in Chicago. And we're going to be talking about medical shows, house included. Wally and I sat on a panel together um, many months ago at the University of Illinois, where we talked about real doctors versus TV doctors. So we're going to re-up that conversation and talk about some of the best and some of the not-so-best um, in TV medical shows through the last several decades. <laughs> so it should be very fun. Now, on to now that the business part is taken care of, we can go and talk about uh, Occam's Razor. So Occam's Razor was um, the third episode of House to Air. But it is very, very, very clear that Occam's Razor was really the second show. Um, it's really a follow-on to the pilot. Uh, like the pilot, it was directed by Brian Singer. And um, it, really, um, it really was a great episode. Um, it had everything that made a house classic. And I actually have a copy of the script in front of me, but I'm going to do a little bit of summary. I'm going to do a little bit of a summary from my book, which is how I'm going to start all the ep all of our episodes until I run out of episodes because my book only goes up through season six. Um, but what I said, the summary of the episode is Occam's Razor, which those of you, anybody who has studied anything in the sciences knows Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is usually the right one. And in this case, the simplest answer is house knows. <laughs> so Occam's razor, a basic principle of scientific inf investigation, states the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. House and the team diagnose a 20-something Brandon who passed out during a night of intense sex. And by the way, that scene, that sex scene in the teaser, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, was actually quite controversial. They didn't show quite as much as they had hoped to because I don't think they could sneak it by the censors. Um, anyway, so no single explanation seems to define his bizarre constellation of symptoms. And if you remember, House was writing them all down and he was circling them with uh, whiteboard markers. Um, and his symptoms included abdominal pain, nausea, low blood pressure, and a fever, in addition to a cough for which he'd been taking a cough medicine. And in House's world, what's the simplest explanation? Guys in the chat room, you should know this. Oh, Katie is typing. Okay, come on, Katie, get it out, get it out. What is the simplest explanation, and this is not for a prize? 
She's typing. I'm waiting. It's type faster. <laughs> oh, I don't know if she's typing the answer. Should I give the answer? I'm going to give the answer. The simplest explanation is somebody lied. And it's corollary, somebody screwed up. So as Brandon's symptoms worsen, House wonders if it isn't the cough medicine itself, which does nothing, of course, to cure Brandon's cough, that's causing all his problems. So I have to wonder, we have to, House wonders what's going on. And of course, as you guys know, mom, who is feeling sorry for her pretty boy, Brandon, with his cough, was giving him cough medicine. And what was the cough medicine? Okay, come on, guys, you know this one. What was the cough medicine, really? It was colchicine. So the zebra of the week, colchicine poisoning. What happened? And what is colchicine? Colchicine is a gout medication, and gout medications are not a good thing to have when you don't have gout. So it turned out the pharmacist was giving him gout pills, colchicine pills. Um, and there was just a screw up, the gout meds. The little colchicine pills look just like the cough pills. Bad stuff. Very, very bad stuff. So how did House come to this conclusion? Believing Brandon's symptoms are caused by cough medicine mix-up from nearly the start. He really thought of it right at the beginning. But House seems to be proven wrong after they investigate further. And in fact, he gets very distraught about the whole thing. And, and, and Wilson and he sort of do a reversal. Um, and they have to, um, Wilson kind of has to bring him out of his funk and say, hey, wait, wait, wait. You know, you don't give up. You never give up on this stuff. So House seems to be proven wrong. But then when Brandon develops two new symptoms in the exact order, as colchicine poisoning would have him develop, House realizes not only was it the gout medicine, it was that he should never, ever, ever, ever doubt himself. How about that for a validation of his smugness and ego, guys? Yeah, definitely. So the best moment, you guys want to call in it's great the number again 718-305-6982 call in best moment of the episode my favorite ep moment of the episode was when house introduces himself to that full room of patients in the clinic it is still in my opinion stands as one of the best clinic beats ever and I'm going to find that because I'm going to tell you what he says. So what happens is, of course, at the, I'm going to go back because at the beginning, how does House get the case? Wilson brings it to him. Wilson brought him the case in the pilot, and he brought him this case. The case in between, he found because it was brought to him. There was a, a, a letter that was sent to him. So now we're in the clinic and he introduces himself hi i'm dr house i am a and this to me 
best delivery ever. Hugh Laurie nailed this line like nobody else could have. I am a board-certified diagnostician with dual specialties in nephrology and infectious diseases. Classic, classic, classic line. And the script says board-certified, B-O-A-R-D, right? Because he has board certifications in both of those. But he says, I am a board certified, which obviously implies B-O-R-E-D. He is bored. Of course he's bored because the clinic bores him. Um, one of the things that Occam's Razor does really, really well is it establishes um, relationships all over the place. It establishes his relationship with Wilson, the fact that Wilson can manipulate him and the fact that Wilson House knows that Wilson can manipulate him, and House is actually okay with that. And and that actually carries through throughout all eight seasons, um, where House easily can manipulate – I mean, sorry, Wilson can easily manipulate House, and yeah, it's okay. It's okay. House actually doesn't mind. To a certain extent, so can Cuddy, but he really doesn't mind it when Wilson does. So we see this relationship with Wilson – um, who brings the case to him, he sees House is really in his shell. And um, just like in the pilot episode, really needs to bring him the case. And so House asks him, what, you have another cousin who's sick? Which also, again, leads me to believe that this was episode two and not episode three. Um, I, not to believe, I know. Um, and, you know, House is like, well, why does this case interest you? And and House is really interested in why Wilson is interested, why this case. And House says, well, or Wilson says, well, he's in the emergency room, and House doesn't really buy that, but takes the case anyway, because he's going to take it. Why? Because it's interesting to Wilson, and that's enough for him, but also because his blood pressure problem was not responding to fluids. Um, we also really get a strong sense of the relationship that House has with his team. And one of the things that, you know, I think is really interesting about the character of House at this point is in, in reading the script again and episode again, I get I don't get the sense that House is this dark, angsty character that he really had become. Um, you get that in the pilot, when, in that conversation, the dying with dignity speech. You get that at the end of paternity, at the end of episode two. And, but you don't really get that in this episode. This is really um, – House is bantering. He's pretty lighthearted, I think, throughout it. Um, it's a pretty light episode. Um, and and interestingly enough, I tend not to like those lighter episodes. It's not a funny episode. There are some funny episodes that I didn't care for. This is a little bit lighter episode, don't you think, guys? Um, it's not as serious as, say, some of the third season episodes, some of the second season episodes, certainly some of the late season one episodes. Um, but you get this relationship he has with the team um, and the banter back and forth between House and Cameron and 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 even with Foreman and you know Foreman, he, he thrusts big, heavy diagnostic volume into Foreman's lap and tells him to go look through it for um, 
for the diagnosis because he's being kind of um, not very analytical about the whole thing. Um, so you get this kind of interesting relationship between uh, House and the team. You also get this great uh, sense of the relationship between House and Cuddy, the bantering. And of course, um, a lot of people who are House Cuddy shippers um, point to this episode and say, aha, there's something there. There's a spark there. You could argue, like House does, that it is a big brother, little sister sort of um, bantering for certainly at this stage. But Wilson doesn't think that. Wilson Wilson thinks otherwise. And let's kind of go over that scene because it's kind of an important scene. So what happens is Cuddy, uh, House appears at the clinic and you got all those sick people, right? Oh, those awful sick people. Um, and Cuddy is there and House comes in and he's late. And um, he's very cheerful and he's doing everything he can not to have to treat the people in the clinic. Um, and um, he says, well, I have a case. I don't have to treat anyone. Well, ha, he doesn't have a case load. Anyway, um, they do this little dance. And finally, of course, House knows he's going to lose. I think House knows he's going to lose anyway. But he likes to argue. I know um, my son likes to argue just to argue. And I think House likes to argue just to argue. But he's got this great a great little speech, and I don't want to quote vast bits of it because I don't want to get into copyright trouble, but I can quote this little scene here. And he says, hello, sick people and their loved ones. In the interest of doing my job as quickly as pos quickly and efficiently as possible, I want to introduce myself now so we don't have to waste valuable time later with idle chit-chat. I'm Dr. Gregory House. You can call me Greg. I'm one of three doctors staffing this clinic this morning. I am a board-certified diagnostician with a double specialty in infectious diseases and nephrology. I am the only doctor currently employed at this clinic who is forced to be here against his will. And, of course, he's very snarky to Cuddy, saying it's true. So now he gets into this great line about um, – he, he pulls out his Vicodin and he talks about, you know, the cases being able to be solved by a monkey with a bottle of Motrin. Uh, trademark. <laughs> this is Vicodin. It's not mine. You can't have any not to worry. I do not have a pain, pain management problem. I have a pain problem. Another foundational argument here, even in the bantering, how House perceives his own pain and, and relationship with drugs but also how he perceives, everyone else perceives it. It's a great little line that's a lot packed in there. I just kind of noticed that looking at the script. Um, I don't have a pain management problem. And you can bet Wilson and Cuddy have been telling him this for years that he has a pain management problem. Um, but he has a pain problem. And then he, then he kind of backs away from that. Uh, maybe I'm too stoned to tell, and he says it with that great kind of stoner face. And, of course, nobody wants to see him, but the luck unlucky lady who has to see him is this poor, poor woman who cannot do her job very well and has diagnosis that she is about to lose her job. 
And it is one of several clinic patients that he sees during this this stint, what will become known as the quote-unquote clinic beats. It's a great little uh, – and and people got very um, upset, I think, in the later seasons. Sorry, I needed to take a sip of tea here. I have a cold. You might be able to tell that in my voice. One other sip of tea. Ah, much better. Um, That those clinic beats kind of disappeared after a while. And they were trying to do a lot of things. They were trying to go in a lot of different directions. And the clinic beats suffered. And, And I know it was one of the things that I would ask every single writer, producer, when I spoke with them, whether it was... Uh, Katie Jacobs, who, of course, was one of the showrunners, or Garrett Lerner and Russell Friend, who are executive producer writers, or Doris Egan, or Kath Lingenfelter, um, any, uh, Peter Blake, any of those writer, um, writer producers, I would ask them, I said, people are really anxious about the clinic beats going away. And, um, and they would say the same thing. They would say, yeah, we really miss those, and we really want to try to find places to bring them back. And they would come back, and then they would go away. And, and But the first season is just full of those, this great comic relief um, for some of the darker moments. And even in some of the lighter episodes, they're quite funny um, to lighten up some of the some of the the darkness and some of the seriousness of some of the episodes. I, I just think that uh, – even in an episode like um, like Merry Little Christmas, there were um, in season three there were some clinic beats that were just wonderful. Yeah, a lot of people, Gabby, saying um, uh, yes, I missed the clinic scenes in later seasons. Yeah, I think everyone did, and I think so did the writers. Uh, but the clinic, the clinic patient, the clinic scenes are great. Um, so you get that sense. Now there's also in it there is a fantastic. Um, dynamic that's developing um, between Foreman, Cameron, and Chase. And this is the episode where you have the great um, scene um, where Chase and Cameron and where where Foreman points out to Chase that um, Cameron has Oh, and Gabby's saying the guy with the MP3 player still cracks me up. Yes, absolutely. Um, Katie's saying, although they're one day in one room, I don't understand what you're saying. Is it that you didn't like the clinic in that? There, that was all clinic. Um, I'm probably one of the minority of people who really loved one day, one room. And I will explain everything about why I think it's a fabulous episode at some other time. But I will absolutely. I, I think it was wonderful. Um, yeah, Gabby is saying, uh, I love how Cameron tells Chase what sex does to the human body. And, um, of course, you know, Foreman is setting this up by saying, you know, she's got you. You're attracted to her. And she's really got you. And Cameron knows this, totally knows this. Um, and, um I'm looking for that scene. Um, where is it? It is. Oh, Got to find that great scene. 
I should have actually written it, um, written it down where it is. Um, here it is. Um, so you've got Cameron Foreman and, and Chase in the room, and um, Foreman is saying to Cameron that um, she totally has him. She totally has him. And, uh, you know, Cameron is saying, why? Because I asked what kind of sex could kill you? Foreman says, no, you now have total control over your relationship with him. So Cameron is not terribly flattered by that. Oh, Gabby is saying, um, One Day, One Room is one of my favorite episodes. Mine too. Thank you, Gabby. <laughs> and she also says in, uh, I think, uh, Gabby, are you a, 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 a guy or a girl? I keep saying girl. And uh, I don't know. Are you a guy or a girl? I don't know. I don't want to insult you either way. Um, in the earlier seasons, I always thought about Cuddy as some sort of surrogate mother for House. And uh, House is the rebellious son, definitely. Or a big sister, you know, a big sister, um, kind of reprimanding. Ah, okay, thanks, Gabby. Girl, okay, I thought so. So I don't feel, I feel vindicated. Um, the man, so, so, so this is going on, but the way she describes, well, eating, She's describing the act of sex and how it races, raises the heart rate and how it's all messy and sweaty and it's really kind of disgusting. All the while, she's taking a bite out of a big red apple and you can see, and Jesse Spencer does a great job, so does Jennifer Morrison, Um takes this big bite out of the apple and you can just look at Chase and he is like gone. Does it foreshadow them getting married someday? Oh, I would think so. <laughs> I would think so. You know that they're going to fall in with each other someday. It's only a matter of time. Um, so it's a really, there's a lot of really good stuff in this, in this episode. Um, another, here it is. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Here's that great scene. So um, Cameron says, sex could kill you. You know what the human body goes through during sex? We close in on Chase as she begins to describe this. Pupils dilate. Um, and, of course, whose pupils are dilating? Chase's. The power of suggestion. Arteries constrict. Core temperature rises. Heart races. Blood pressure skyrockets. Respiration becomes rapid and shallow. His breathing does get a little bit, uh, whew, I think it's getting hot in here. Um, the brain fires bursts of electrical impulses from nowhere to nowhere. And she goes on and on and on, and secretions spit out every gland, muscles tense and spasm like you're lifting three times your body weight. And, she, and this is what it says in the stage directions, guys. His leg is starting to shake ever so subtly. We stay on chase looking at him again. It's violent, it's ugly, and it's messy, and if God hadn't made it unbelievably fun, the human race would have died off eons ago. Men are lucky they can only have one orgasm. Do you know you know that women can have an hour long orgasm? I don't think that actually made it into the to the show. I don't remember her saying that. Hey Foreman, what's up? And she is off and, and Chase is just sort of left there. Um, it's a fantastic scene. The one thing that's not in the stage directions is the apple. 
So I'm wondering if that was something that uh, Jennifer Morrison just decided to add or the director, Brian Singer, might have decided to add that. But that was such a great touch with the apple. Uh, Katie says, someone described House as having to go to Cuddy's office as going to the principal's office. But you know what? He could banter. He, you can't banter with a principal. And the bantering between Cuddy and House is really, yeah, they're not equals as far as, you know, boss to not boss. But I think they're intellectual equals. So I'm not sure I agree with the principal's office thing. I think he likes going to Cuddy's office as much as going to the principal's office. Although I think deep down inside, he probably enjoys having someone to banter with. Um, that's not Wilson. He loves bantering with Wilson, but Wilson has to work. And in House's opinion, Cuddy actually doesn't do anything. So he can annoy her. And part of it, too, the principal's office, another school analogy would be, you know, he's the guy who's dipping the, the girl's pigtail in the ink to a certain amount, to a certain extent. Even if there's nothing um, attractive, you know, like they're not attracted to each other in that way at this point of the game, um, he's still kind of like, you know, dipping the, the pigtail into the ink uh, of the cute girl in class. He can't really do that to Cameron because she's a subordinate. Um, so anyway, so... Now we have um, the more whiteboard sessions. There's lots of whiteboard sessions. That was something else that they did fewer things of um, as time went on, they, especially in the last couple of seasons. They didn't do as many whiteboard sessions. Is that right? I can't. I, I don't remember them having so many whiteboard sessions. They um, oh uh, question here. Could the apple be symbolic? For Eve ate in paradise in the Bible. I was absolutely thinking that's true. That could very much be the symbolism that Brian Singer or Jennifer Morrison or both of them were going for. Also from the chat room, the house writers certainly like trying to razz the censors apart from the orgasm thing. I can think of a few times where I thought, how did that make it on TV? Definitely. You know, speaking of moments like that, and I don't want to disrupt my house discussion with um, a once upon a time discussion, but there was a scene in the last once upon a time episode where you have um, Ruby, who's Little Red Riding Hood, but she's Ruby in uh, modern time uh, main community of Storybrooke, for those of you who don't watch the show, and she's a werewolf. And um, she is having a chat with Dr. Whale, who's the town doctor, who also happens to be Victor Frankenstein. And um, they're worried that people are going to come into the town from the outside and poke and prod them and study them and stuff like that. And, um, you know, Frankenstein says, well, you know, we can explain it like this. And, and then Ruby says, but I ate my boyfriend. And... I, my jaw almost dropped to the floor and they both give each other a look. But of course, she's a werewolf. She did like consume like limb from limb, her boyfriend without knowing it. And that was just such a great slick, sleek line that Jane Espenson had written for that episode. Talk about getting it through the censors. I thought that was kind of a, a cool thing, but on house all the time. They can't do that so much on, on some shows, especially a show that runs on Sunday nights on, on ABC, which is owned by Disney. But on House, they did stuff like that all the time. So 
um, so we have some great, um, great more bantering and more bantering. So, so you've got great relationships establishing an Occam's razor between House and Cuddy, really that bantering between House and Wilson, more bantering, that more fake sort of, I don't really like what you're doing and I really can't stand this. But I think if Wilson had stopped, House would kind of egg him on until he nudged him some more. Um, so um, you've got that. You've got that great relationship between Foreman, Chase, and um, Cameron really beginning to gel, as well as the relationship of House, mentor, teacher, because he really is teacher. Uh, to the guys and and you know seeing the episode again you know he's not that nasty to them um he's kind of gruff and rough i mean he gets meaner and nastier and he has his moments um but you know it's not mean-spirited i don't think house is ever mean-spirited and i think that's what keeps him on on just on this side of likable even in his most like unlikable moments um, of course, there's that great exchange, again, going back to the beginning of House and Cuddy's relationship, again, wherever um, wherever it went and however you felt how it went, um, there's Wilson's perception of it is something else when he says, uh, you know, what is it with you and her? Um, and, of course, House has that great line, there is not a thin line between love and hate. There is, an, in fact, a great wall of China with armed sentries point, posted every 20 feet between love and hate, of course. And, of course, also in this episode, you have House um, going very casually to the pharmacist, asking for 36 Vicodin, getting his Vicodin. Wilson's right there. Um, you know, it's like he's getting it like candy. And, of course, he ends up giving it... Um, to the patient and giving, giving the placebo to the patient and pocketing the Vicodin. So you get the sense that he's, <clears throat> that he's beginning to hoard Vicodin even now. And of course that comes back to haunt him in season three. More tea, more tea. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Occam's razor for a very early episode just does such um, an amazing, amazing job um, really establishing the foundation. Of course, he's nasty, nasty to the patient's mother, uh, accusing her of trying to kill her son, even if it is, um, even if it is unintentionally. Um, and in the chat room, love the great wall quote. I've actually used that before. I'm not in the habit of quoting House all the time. It is a great, great one. And in fact, I think I actually wrote a, an article, a feature article for blog critics. Uh, I think it might have been in season five that kind of explicated the House-Cuddy relationship. And I think I called, I think it was in two parts. And the second part, I think, was called um, The Great Wall um, or the thin line between love and hate. That was what it was called, the thin line between love and hate. And, of course, there's that great final scene in Occam's Razor, too. Um, oh, uh, 
again from the chat room, Gabby says, I remember my mother saying that House got too nasty for her in season five, and she started to dislike the character. She's not the only one. I've heard other people say the same thing. Um, and then in season eight, she started to like him again. I think in season five, um, he was angstier. I, I actually liked season five. Those of you who are in the chat room, what was your favorite season? I have to ask that because I didn't ask that during my first episode. Um, I have two favorite seasons and I can't, I can't um, really distinguish between the two of them as to which I like better. Um, I loved season three. I really loved season three. Some people said that season three was just not um, as good a season as season two or season one. Um, I thought season three for the first time um, really established an arc. I really liked the arc of House experimenting with something that would get rid of his pain permanently and having it fail. Um, I am a great lover of angst. I am totally an angst whore. I will be the first to admit it. And season three was very, very angsty very much about House's inner turmoil and pain. So I liked it. Sorry. Um, and so Gabby says two and eight. I loved season two. And when we get to season two, we will, we will talk about it in season eight, season eight, <clears throat> excuse me. Is that cold again? Um, season eight. I liked a lot of it, especially towards the end. Um, I really liked it. I wish that in season eight, they had known sooner that the series was going to end. Um, I know I had several conversations with uh, writers on the show, producers on the show, and even as far back as the end of season seven, when we found out that Lisa Edelstein was going to be leaving, but also um, that there was a chance that this would be, that season eight would be the last season. And I think a lot of people were, um, you know, yeah, I think this is going to be the end. I think this is going to be the end, but they didn't know for sure. So had they known for sure, and I know that one of the things that, that they all told me um, at the end of season seven was they wanted to know as soon as possible in season eight, if that was in fact going to be the last season, because they really wanted to build to the end. And they had, I think it was the last four episodes of the series really built out to the end, um, did a really, really good job. And I love the last sequence of episodes a lot. Um, there were parts of season eight that I didn't love as much, um, but I love the season for uh, how it ended. I thought it was perfect. I really did. And I love the way it began. I loved the episode 20 Vicodin. I thought it was great. Season five. Now, Katie's saying seasons one, five, seven, and eight. Interesting. Because a lot of people didn't like season seven. I liked it. I didn't adore it. Um, I loved season three for the angst. I loved season five. Season five, I loved. And people tend to say to me, oh, well, you liked season five because of the, and again, the house, the, the, the non-house cutty shippers would really get on my case. Um, oh, well, you're just such a huddy, you know, like, that. of course, you're going to love season five. To be honest, I think season five was um, so powerful as House's problems, 
his emotional problems, his drug problems, his pain problems, all converged while he was trying to make himself what he perceived to be whole so that he could court Cuddy. That was kind of a driving force for him. And so he tried all of these things. He hated the fact that he was in pain. He hated the fact that he needed to have Vicodin or, or something. And he tried all kinds of things. He went down all sorts of paths. And, of course, when he started having hallucinations um, at the end of season five, that was just so brilliantly done. Um, Katie says that the only low point of five, in her opinion, was Kuttner's death. I thought starting from that episode, because cause Kuttner's death was so pivotal to House's downfall. Um, that was such a turning point. And Gabby says, I think they should have had the guts to either renew House for season eight and nine together or say from the beginning that season eight was the last because it felt rushed. Well, this is what I was saying is that the producers of the show were right with us. They had no idea. They had no idea. They would have liked, I know, I know, and I had not asked, I didn't ask them that at the end of season eight, but I do know that every single one of them that I spoke with, and I spoke with many of them, that they really felt they wanted to have a whole season to build up to it. Um, and it was uh, one, a real blockbuster. I think one of the last people I spoke with in season eight was, was Kath Lingenfelter, who had said, yeah, once they had found out, they were they were really trying to build to the end. And, and they did a really good job. And I thought the finale was, was phenomenal. And I could not have asked for a more perfect series finale. Um, on the other hand, I watched the season finale of Last Resort, which was cut way before it should have been. And that's a whole other discussion for another time. But they rushed. Talk about rushing. Um, they really had a rush to make the, that series end, like really end, because they were going off the air after 13 episodes. Um Katie says, I have issues with Cuddy and the whole baby thing. It seemed wrong to me. And a lot of people had issues with that. I didn't I didn't love it. Um, I think it did have some problems. I think um, it could have been handled differently or better or whatever. Um, they could have done some different things. But I think what happened was it got caught up in all of the other angst of that season and in the next season. Uh, Gabby says, I love the episode 20 Vicodin. Me too. I just thought that was really well done. And it was everything that I could do. I saw that episode about two weeks before everybody else did, uh, except for other journalists. And it was everything that I could do not to tell um, because people were really so down on the, the series. At the end of season seven, um, people were just I, – I wrote my review – and I had about nine, I think this is a record for blog critics. I had 900 and something or 700 and something comments on that review. And I, and I interviewed um, Kathleen Infelter and Peter Blake after the episode. Um, and we had an intense conversation. And people really, um, really hated that last episode of season seven. I actually didn't have a big problem with it. Um, people hated it because they hated what it did to the House Cuddy thing. And it was before Lisa Edelstein, they knew Lisa Edelstein was leaving the show. Um, but 20 Vicodin picking up from that, I thought was such a strong episode. And when I saw it, all I could tell people was, I really, really 
really love the episode so much. Um, so I agree with Gabby that 20 Vicodin is, is absolutely way up there among my favorite episodes. Um, so I wanted to kind of close with some other little um, pullouts, call-outs. Um, Katie says it was too convenient for Cuddy, in my opinion. She's having a naming ceremony in her kid only a few episodes later. Uh, yeah, it was a little Duzek's machina. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, and and Gabby had has issues with making Cuddy House's love interest. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people did. Um, and a lot of people think it destroyed it. I didn't. Um, I went along with it. I, I liked all of the relationships. Um, that, hang on one second. I Oh, okay. Whoever did that, whoever was in the chat room, I'm glad they left because I was going to block them and I'm going to block that person forever. Um, that was really unnerving. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know what? Gabby says, if they wanted to explore house in a relationship, they should have introduced a new character. Well, they introduced Lydia and they never brought Lydia back. Um, they had Stacy, and Stacy was there for a while. It's his old love interest. So, uh, you know, they could have done a lot of things, but this is what I always say. <clears throat> you can't dictate to a show's powers that be what they should what they should do. They have to write the show to their vision, and for better or for worse. And I was always willing to go along with that. I'm a writer. I just finished my first novel. People are going to read my novel. They're going to either love it or they're going to hate it. Hopefully they have an opinion one way or the other. Um, I can't put it out there to be baited and say, okay, guys, how should I end this or what should I do with it? Um, you have to write to your own vision. And no matter what David Shore and company would have done with House in a Relationship, somebody would have been ticked off. Um, there are some people who are upset that Wilson – wasn't House's, um, you know, significant other. Um, and maybe that's how he ended, he ended up. Who knows? Um, or maybe that stays in the realm of fan fiction. So, you know, they, they did what they wanted to do, and I was willing to follow that. I was willing to, just like you're willing to suspend your disbelief to go along with the show, I was willing to suspend what maybe my preferences might be. I would have loved House to reconcile with Stacy. I was so sad when that exploded. But um it is what it is and I was I was pretty pretty happy to to go along with what they wanted. Um and so people would call me kind of a shill for the show and say, "Well, you know, you just like them because they you get interviews or you get access or whatever." And that totally isn't true. Um, I was critical of the show when I felt it needed to be critical of the show. And I was critical of it in season seven and in season eight. And I was especially critical of the show when uh, House, in my opinion, was taken out of character or made too unlikable. And there were a few episodes, season four, season seven, season eight, where I felt that that happened. Um, so I want to wrap up by... Um, just calling out a couple of little things um, from this episode. Um, 
speaking of relationships, of course, um, you have Wilson asking House about the relationship, whether he and Cuddy have a thing for each other. And, of course, that fantastically funny scene between Chase and Cameron, the two shipper moments of the, the night. Um, so it was a great episode. Um, it's not – it wasn't, in my opinion, a classic. It was a classic because it was very much a classic house episode, but it was not on my list of, you know, my top, top house classics. Um, so – um, and Gabby makes has the opinion also, making Cuddy House's love interest the powers that be destroyed, which some people call the triumvirate. Yes, you could say that, but not necessarily. I don't necessarily agree with that either. And we can get more into that. Maybe we'll do a show. Ha, huh? nah, maybe I won't. Um, we could do a show just on, on House and his many loves, um, but we'll see. Anyway, I invite you to tune in next week for an episode um, that I, again, didn't name as a house classic, but could very well have been one. I think it was one of the best episodes of season one and certainly of early season one, Maternity, um, one of my favorite episodes. Uh, so until next time, uh, we are ending for tonight, and I will see you guys uh, next week. So have a great week. Tune in next Monday night and tune in next Tuesday night as well. Have a great week, guys. Bye.